man, I, I think my favorite line in that song is when, when God says, stand back and watch salvation work. That's, that's what God says. Thank you. Absolutely. Would you join me in prayer as we turn to the word? Father, you are so good. Lord, not only are you holy, but you have made a way for us to be holy too. You've taken broken sinners and and cleansed them and offered them healing and forgiveness and peace. And we want to praise you this morning. And I pray that by your spirit, while we look to your word, we would see salvation at work in our church and in our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have been with us or or viewing online, you know I'm preaching through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul gives the church instructions for how to behave in the household of God. And he begins very broadly talking about how it's his will that the whole church lift holy hands in prayer and pray about everything. Pray about kings and those in authority. Pray that the church is able to live a peaceful, quiet life for the sake of the gospel, that as the good news about Jesus, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, spreads around that the church would be built up and grow. And then from very broad instructions for the entire church, for every person in the church, he moves and begins addressing different groups within the church. And we've just begun looking at, in particular, God's qualifications for elders or overseers. And last week I preached on the nature of the call, what it is to be an elder or an overseer. And this week, I want to preach what it means to be qualified to serve as an elder or overseer in God's house. And I want to be very clear. I believe that our church needs to consider what our leadership looks like in the future. And I believe that this book is a gift from God to us to help us understand how we should function and how we should operate. And so last week, one of the things I did is is I asked Debbie to make these little uh, bookmarks. If you didn't get one last week, I've got more this week. And they list the qualifications that I am going to be preaching through in just a moment. And I want to ask you to take one and to pray faithfully that God would, number one, protect and preserve the leaders we have in service, and number two, that we as a church would identify qualified godly men to lead us into the future. Um, I believe one of the most important things that a church does is equip and prepare the next generation to carry the good news of Jesus to the neighborhood. And that is one of our major tasks as a church. And we can only do that with qualified godly men leading as pastors in our congregation. So I want to ask that you would continue to keep this in prayer. And if you didn't get a bookmark last week, don't leave without one this week. I believe as we call on God, we will see him answer our prayers and we will be tremendously blessed. Now, before I preach through the qualifications, I want to say this loudly and clearly. We believe in a gospel of grace. There is not a perfect person other than Jesus Christ who has ever lived. And there's a way to look through these high qualifications and to kind of become discouraged. To feel like the standard is so high that it's impossible for anyone to serve. And I want to say broadly, you might feel like, man, I'm not qualified to serve in leadership. This this message just isn't for me. No. It's for you for two reasons. Number one, the church is called to nominate and appoint men to serve as elders. 
So the congregation needs to be aware of these qualifications so that we are able to call men into service. That's one reason. You have to know the requirements. Number two, the elders and overseers of a church are leaders that we as a church must follow. So the standards for their life are meant to be examples for everyone. So as I preach through this list, you may think of areas in your life that are not what they should be. And I would be a terrible pastor if I left you feeling guilty and hopeless, condemned and outcast. We believe in a gospel of grace. That God calls guilty people and he forgives them and he saves them and he blesses them. And in fact, many people with terrible pasts have been changed by the mercy of God and gone on to serve in faithful leadership. And I'll give you one. And it's the guy that's writing the letter that we're reading. The Apostle Paul is very honest. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He is complicit in murder. And yet, the grace of God was magnified in his life. And he becomes perhaps the most prominent of all the apostles. Counting the number of letters that he wrote in the New Testament, his life and ministry have had a global impact for 2,000 years because of what God did in the life of a sinner who was changed by the grace of God. And before I preach through this list, I want to show you a passage briefly where this is true of every believer, whether or not you ever serve in leadership. So Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, before we go to 1 Timothy, I want to show you that the Holy Spirit When you believe the gospel of Jesus, leads you out of sin and into holiness. So the list we're going to look at that talks about the qualifications of overseers and elders is a list that describes a holy life. And the Holy Spirit does this for every believer. I was reading this just a couple of days ago in my morning devotions. And I struck and I felt like I just had to share this with the church. Peter had just been sent into the home of a Gentile, which was crazy. As a Jew, he normally would not have gone there, but God spoke to him and said, look, don't you ever consider unclean what I have made clean. I'm working in this man's life, and he needs to hear the gospel of Jesus, so you go. And Peter goes, and in chapter 9 it says, while he was preaching, while they heard the good news, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And it was evident to everyone that they had believed the good news about Jesus, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And when they believed, they were saved and baptized. And then Peter is explaining to a Jewish church that these Gentiles are part of God's family now. You can't treat them any different than anyone else, that God has intended his family to be a unified and a diverse body. And this is what he says In chapter 11, as he recounts the story, starting in verse 13, Peter is describing how Cornelius had told them how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Cornelius was a good man. He had a good reputation. But apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, he would not have been saved. 
So this angel tells him, you need someone to tell you a message. You need to believe this message. And the promise is you will be saved when you hear this message and believe it. And Peter says, verse 15, as I began to speak. So no, no invitation, no just as I am. He's just listening to the message. Peter is speaking. It says, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter is testifying. They received the Holy Spirit when they listened to the message about Jesus and believed it. There was no 10-step process. They believed the message and were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, he says, if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, again, he's just saying the only thing you do is you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. He says, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And so he baptized them and they're added to the church. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so I want to point out a couple things about that passage before we look at this list of qualifications. Every elder has gone through that exact experience. They have heard the message about Jesus Christ. They have understood their own sin. And they have believed the message about Jesus and been given the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, the church says, that God granted them repentance. That means they were aware of their sin and aware of their guilt. They recognized they were not fine. But in fact, they would have been condemned by God unless God did a work in their lives and forgave their sins and cleansed them of their sins. When God granted them that repentance, which they received, through the working of the Holy Spirit, as they listened to the message, they were led to life. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives them that eternal life. Jesus makes it really clear. You receive eternal life when you believe in Jesus Christ. And that life is a holy and sanctified life. The gift of the Holy Spirit begins a process of change. You are saved in a moment when you believe and given the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit will change your life forever. I remember I've mentioned before, but the testimony of my friend Ernesto, he was a young kid, never really been in church, started playing basketball at a church down in Waterford. And when he became a Christian, he was kind of rough around the edges. He used to get kicked out of the basketball program because he couldn't stop swearing because that's just how he talked. So I'd be like, you, you can come back when you stop swearing. Well, when he got saved, he realized that the Holy Spirit was in him because the things that he used to do that he was proud of that never bothered him, all of a sudden bothered him a lot. He said he remembered the day after he prayed and and all he said, he said, you know, God, I'm yours if you'll have me. That was his kind of sinner's prayer. You know, as best I understand, I think, I think I know Jesus died for me. I think Jesus rose again. God, I'm yours if you'll have me. And and he said that day he went home and, and he talked back to his mama, which used to never bother him at all. He did it all the time. Felt great about it most of the time. But later that day, he realized that what he had done was wrong. And then he realized 
that God was in him because the Holy Spirit was bothering him in a way that he had never experienced before. And it's because he believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for his sins and rose from the dead, and the Holy Spirit in him would not tolerate his sin anymore. So when he dishonored his mother, I mean, that's one of the major Ten Commandments, right? He dishonored his mother. The Holy Spirit said, hey, you're mine, and I'm not going to let you do that. And he had to repent of that sin. He had to forsake it. Friends, that is the story of every Christian. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit alive in you. And the reason I want to preach this is I'm about to preach through a list of attributes that shows a high standard of God's holiness. And I don't want a single person in here to feel like they're a second-class citizen in the church. That's not what this is. But the people that God calls to leadership in the church must abide by these high standards because this is the direction that we're moving towards as we look ultimately to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit continues to work in our lives and continues to lead us more and more into the image of Christ. So with that as a background, with a foundation of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want to go through the list of attributes and we'll we'll read the whole passage again, just like we did last time. So if you're using your phone, navigate to 1 Timothy. If you've got a paper Bible, go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And I want to take these attributes just one at a time, and some of them will dwell on a little bit longer, some of them will move a little bit quicker. But to begin with, Scripture says overseers or elders must be above reproach. Now, as I was reading, I thought reproach is not a word that we use very often. In fact, I can't think of a context that I have ever used it aside from reading this passage. So when that happens, a lot of times the first thing that I do when I study is I'll grab a number of different English translations and see if translators have used a word that's more familiar, that's maybe more accurate and better. And you know what I found? Every single English translation uses the word reproach. It was completely unhelpful. So then I I got out my Greek lexicon, which I I would have done anyway because I, I... Sometimes I just want to check the quality of a translation anyway. And I thought, okay, so I'll have a couple of options when I look this up. And what I found was the word that is used there is only used one time in the New Testament. And the only option that my lexicon gave me was above reproach. I was like, shoot, I I need some examples and help with this. 
So I had one other resource that I could look at, and it knocked it out of the park. It was amazingly helpful. And I'm excited to be able to say, I think I've got a better handle on what this means. The word is actually a combination of a couple words. And what it means is that you cannot hang on to someone. Doesn't mean that nobody's going to say anything bad about you. People said all kinds of terrible things about Jesus, right? They called him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But the difference is those accusations just rolled off of Jesus like water off a duck's back. Because if you knew him, you knew they were not true. And it's very possible that the people who are put forward as leaders in our church. People might say terrible things about them. The difference is, if you examine their lives, you know those terrible things are not true. And I was thinking, I'm not a football guy, and I have to be really careful using sports analogies. Because if I'm likely to get something wrong in a message, it's a sports analogy. I just, I'll use the wrong words, I won't understand it right. But everybody remembers Barry Sanders, right? What's Barry Sanders famous for? Well, football, yeah. I even knew that. (laughs) But he's famous for for being a quarterback who ran. Oh, my goodness. See, I told you. I knew this would happen. Yeah, yeah. Barry Sanders is famous for running, for running really fast. Right. And it's not that the other team didn't try to catch him. They did, right? Yes. But very often they were not successful, which was what made him a really good running back. Not a quarterback. Who would think that? (laughs) The point in leadership is not that no one says bad things about your elder pastor. The point is that when bad things are said, they don't stick. That's what it means to be above reproach. It means you cannot hang on to them because even when you try to accuse them, it's obviously untrue. And I thought, not only if Barry Sanders, that famous running back, more importantly, I thought of Christ. I've been reading through the Gospel of Mark for the past couple of days and very early in this ministry. Mark is a short gospel, but very early in his ministry, it describes Jesus doing these incredible miracles, and he begins to teach. And chapter 3, okay, we're not that far into the book. Chapter 3 says the religious leaders were conspiring to destroy this man who was healing and forgiving and preaching. They hated him. And when he's on trial, you can read when he goes before the Jewish Sanhedrin, they try to bring witnesses to condemn him. And the scripture says they couldn't find two witnesses to agree because there was no truth or substance to their charges. Jesus is the ultimate example of being above reproach. He is the one that we are striving to follow. Now, friends, Our pastors are not Jesus Christ. All of us sin. All of us still sin. But it ought to be true that when we are slandered, it's obvious that slander is not true. 
And you know, one of the best ways to disprove slander is when I sin, I can confess it. And I don't try to hide it or excuse it. I don't try to deny it. Because one of the things that a faithful pastor elder will do is he will lead the church in repentance. He will lead the church in saying, yeah, I have sinned. And thank God that Jesus forgives our sin. Now that we're going to talk about that's not an excuse for an unqualified person to stay in ministry. There are sins that disqualify someone from leadership. But a humble pastor who is above reproach will be honest about real sin and say, you know what, that one's true. And I'm sorry, and would you forgive me? Above reproach. Not only do we have the example of, of Jesus, I, I thought of John the Baptist. I wanted to give you one mention of a guy from history. Uh, some of you have heard of a guy named Augustine. Some people pronounce his name Augustine. When we get to heaven, we'll find out how he pronounces his name. And until then, no one knows. But Augustine is a famous pastor who, who lived about 1,500 years ago, a little bit further back than that. And I mention him for one reason. Augustine is a guy who is very, very honest about the sins he committed as a young man. And the reason I mention that is there are some who feel disqualified from leadership who should serve because their sins were before they came to Christ or it has been so long since they committed them, their life now is above reproach when at one time it was not. And Augustine is a bishop in, in Hippo. He's an amazing pastor who has blessed the church for about 1,500 years with his faithfulness to the word of God and the books that he wrote. And he would have been very honest. Like Paul, he said, man, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not perfect. But when he met Christ, his life was changed. And his example and his preaching were so powerful, they pushed him into public leadership because they believed that he was qualified, even though at one time he would not have been. So friends, what I want to say is, as we're praying through the members of our congregation, asking ourselves, who should serve in this capacity? Maybe you'll remember a guy that was wild and crazy in his 20s. But if he's 60 years old, and he hasn't been wild and crazy for the past 40 years, we're talking about something different. Past failures that are forgiven and repented of and forsaken do not disqualify someone for ministry forever. So I spent a long time on above reproach because this matters. There are, there are churches that are tarnishing the name of Jesus because they're continuing to support men who should not serve in the pastorate. And this passage says to us, we must insist that anyone who serves in this office be above reproach or we will not be blessed. Not only does the scripture say he must be above reproach, the next one says he must be the husband of one wife. In Greek, it says a one woman man. And that matters for a number of reasons. And I want to clarify something. Good and godly people disagree about exactly what this means. Because the phrase, one woman man, could mean a couple of different things. It might mean, all pastors must be married. The Catholics really disagree with us on that. Probably that's not what it means. In fact, if you look through Paul's other writings... In 1 Corinthians, he actually preaches on the virtues of singleness in ministry. And Jesus is clear, man, not everybody is called to that. 
But if you are able to serve as a single man, you have more opportunities because you have fewer responsibilities. So almost certainly, Paul is not requiring marriage for the office of overseer. Instead, he's saying something significant about what it means to be a married man. Now, in a moment, he's going to talk a little bit about managing his own household. And there's a parallel between managing your household in private and serving the church in public. So that's part of why this matters. But given the fact that Paul was not married, and given the fact that he praises the virtues of singleness in ministry, this phrase almost certainly is not saying that a pastor must be married, but rather he must be faithful to one woman as his wife. Now, there are a couple questions that come along with that. Uh, One of them is, does someone who has been divorced in the past become disqualified from ministry? And I want to suggest a couple of things. Number one, he's not really talking about divorce in this passage. He is insisting on a godly man being faithful to his wife. And I would say that divorce falls under the type of sins that perhaps if it happened a long time ago, and there has been faithfulness for decades, perhaps that man meets the qualification of being a one woman man, even if he happened to be remarried. Now that's a huge question. And some of the issues are, did it happen before he came to Christ? Think again of the Apostle Paul. So, the Apostle Paul is complicit in murder before he came to Christ. If your pastor murders someone or is complicit in murder, they are no longer qualified for ministry. Period. But if it happened before he became a Christian, and there has been a period of time where he has lived publicly in godliness, There's a possibility that God has done such a work that he may call that man into public ministry. And I want to suggest, I believe that when Paul is saying the husband of one wife, he is saying the man needs to be faithful to his wife. It is absolutely excluding those who are committing adultery and those who are in polygamous relationships. And it is excluding those who are even sexually faithful to their wife, but are not loving the way Christ has loved the church. Pastors should not be grouchy husbands. Paul says in Ephesians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. So the qualification to be a one-woman man is not to be grouchily married till death do us part. The qualification is to follow the example of Jesus and to sacrificially give yourself for your wife, not only in sexual faithfulness, but also in nurturing her and meeting her needs emotionally and physically and spiritually. Being a faithful and a godly husband is an absolute necessity. Now, friends, I've admitted there are some who do think that divorce permanently disqualifies you from ministry. This is another issue that I think we need to wrestle with and answer the question, what does our church believe about this? Uh, I've told you my understanding of this passage. I would say, as we pray through these qualities and qualifications, let's pray through this issue as well. As we nominate men for service, 
We're going to have to address this. Uh, and I've told you what I think, but let's pray that the Lord would guide us and direct us as we go through this process as well. Not only are they to be above reproach, not only are they to be husband of one wife, but they are to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Uh, when we were praying through these this morning at the 9.30 prayer service, I said, I take these three qualifications together because all three of them mean that your elder pastor should be no fun. <laughs> sort of. Here's where I think this matters. Okay, I'm cracking jokes. I'm making football mistakes in this message. I, like We've laughed a little bit, and I think a healthy way, right? These commands are not saying you must never smile. They are saying that we must be serious, self-controlled, and respectable. Don't make yourself a fool in ministry for the sake of being the fun party guy. That's a mistake as a pastor. In fact, one of the things that I think the church in America needs to wrestle with is the fact that we struggle to be serious. Everybody likes a comedian. We all like to laugh. But friends, we are preaching about heaven and hell. We are preaching about life and death. The consequences of sin are eternal. And if we do not find the grace that's in Christ Jesus, there is an eternity away from God that will be terrible beyond our imaginations. And so the calling of being a pastor, preaching the gospel, is a serious calling. It must be treated seriously with gravity. And I think of Jesus. Jesus, in all of his preaching, is enormously serious. Jesus says some of the hardest things in the entire Bible about the standards of God's morality. Jesus warns of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And yet he was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and little kids wanted to hang out with him. So when I preach that they must be serious, because that's what I believe this means, I'm not saying that they must be miserable to be around. I think Christ is our example here as well. He is absolutely life and death serious about the gospel of God and about the call in our lives to holiness and faithfulness. And yet, women trusted him and came and wept at his feet. Little kids wanted to be taught by him. And I believe that he had a kind of joy that made everyone want to be around him. And so let's strive for sober-mindedness and self-control and being respectable in a way that lines up with who we know Jesus is, based on not our private opinions of him or some picture that we saw in a book somewhere, but based on how the Word of God describes him. So not only are elders called to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. They're called to be hospitable and able to teach. Now, I'm going to end with able to teach. Some of you are nervous right now. They are called to be hospitable. Let me finish that, and then I'll talk about the qualification for teaching. Friends, I believe that hospitality is one of the most important components of the Christian life. We live in a very isolated culture. 
We're isolated because we pursue entertainment alone. We don't even have one television where the family gathers anymore. We have televisions scattered throughout our houses so that we go watch them by ourselves. We rarely know our neighbors. Sometimes, but for the most part, we rarely know our neighbors. And more than ever, people are lonely. The command for an elder to be hospitable is an invitation to share life with other people, to eat together, to know and to be known. Now, friends, I want to openly apologize. Many of you have never been to my house. Some of you have, and a few of you have been to my house a lot, and, and I strive to be hospitable, but one of the reasons I believe a plurality of elders is so important is I literally couldn't have all of you to my house even in the space of a single year. One of the reasons I believe that a plurality of elders is necessary is for our church culture to be a culture of hospitality. We need to have enough men serving in leadership so that we're able to welcome anybody and everybody so that it's easy to come to the inner circle of our church and feel like family, no matter your age or marital status. That you could come here and be welcomed into someone's home very quickly in a way that is comfortable and full of joy. Elders must be hospitable. This is an often overlooked qualification because very often we judge a man's competence based on how well he speaks and how well he teaches. But if he cannot welcome you into his home, he is not qualified as an elder. Period. Not only are they called to be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, they are to be able to teach. And I want to end here and say just a couple of things about this. Number one, this is the qualification that sets elders apart from deacons. Many of the qualifications we're going to look at deacons are very similar. And yet, an elder is called to be able to teach and a deacon never has an obligation to teach. We read from Titus last week, and Paul talked about how the responsibility of elders was to accurately teach and to rebuke those who were wayward. One of the core jobs of an elder is teaching, not just preaching, but also making sure that the entire church grows in the knowledge of the word of God. And so it's absolutely essential, not that they just be a fluent and eloquent speaker. In fact, some of the most gifted men I've ever heard were kind of bad at the delivery. I'll give you one example. There's a guy named Larry Moyer. Larry Moyer was an evangelist and a lot like Moses. In fact, it's, it's kind of funny that you, you mentioned that passage where Moses says, I, I can't speak very well. And, and God says, well, who made man's mouth? I'll, I'll equip you. I'll help you. Larry Moyer was an evangelist who stuttered so bad that the first time I ever heard him speak, I couldn't believe that they had invited him to speak. It was really distracting. But within about two or three minutes, your ears kind of adjusted And then you started to see the heart of this man shine through. And one of the things that he taught was that it's normal for Christians to want to share their faith, but they don't know how. And so many people feel like failures and they feel guilty because they want to tell people about Jesus, but they just don't know how. Many of you know, I love using the 10 word gospel, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Right? I learned that from Larry Moyer probably 17 years ago. 
he has had a lasting impact on my life because of how he clearly communicated the gospel in spite of the fact that no one would call him an inspiring speaker. So being able to teach doesn't mean that you're smooth and polished and organized. Being able to teach means you can share the word of God and people accurately understand it afterwards. Doesn't mean that you're going to use the same style and delivery that anyone else does. It means you're going to share the word of God and people understand what it means afterwards. So able to teach is a unique qualification for elders. They have a unique responsibility to make sure that the church knows the word and is protected from error and falsehood. Friends, this is a qualification that intimidates many, many people. And on one level, you could allow this to keep you from serving in ministry because there is always more to know. There's always more to know. I still have not learned Hebrew. I I would love to fix that, but I could say, I'm not qualified because I can't read the Old Testament in the original language. That's actually not a fair qualification. It's not true. For the history of the church, nobody has required you to be accurate and fluent in, in biblical languages before you become a minister of the gospel. They're helpful. They're good. And you might say, you know what? I, I, I've never read the whole Bible. And I'd say, okay, now's a great time to start. Perhaps your ignorance is keeping you from serving as an elder but it shouldn't keep you from serving as an elder in two or three years. One of the things that the Bible shows is that as Paul plants churches, he raises up elders. And the church that he's speaking to in the book of 1 Timothy is the church of Ephesus. He spent three years there. And in three years, he took people who had been worshiping false gods, who believed the gospel, and appointed them in leadership in the local church. Many of you have been saved for decades. And if you are remaining in a place where you still are ignorant of the gospel, then yeah, absolutely, that does exclude you from leadership. Don't let it exclude you from leadership in two to three years from now. Be dedicated and devoted to learning the word of God now so that you are able to teach it. And I want to say very directly, I've preached a lot through this book, slowly. I believe that if you are being called of God to serve our church as an elder, but you're like, I don't know if the word of God is, uh, I don't know if I know it well enough. Would you come talk to me today? Because what I'd like to do is I'd like to help you know it better. The point of this list is not to make sure that no one ever serves. The point of this list is to help us understand how we need to grow and what we must be like so that we can serve. And so friends, as we close today, I want to ask a couple of questions. Number one, how does this apply to all of us? Well, I said at the beginning, whether or not you ever serve in leadership, these are things that must be true of your life. Christian, you must be sexually pure. Christian, you must have a reputation that reflects your Savior. Being a Christian literally means being a Christ follower, being a little Christ, so that when someone looks at your life, they think of Jesus. So is that true of you? Are you above reproach? Not only that, do you recognize how serious 
this life is. This life is so short. And the Bible says that everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We don't know how long we have. So every Christian must have a seriousness about telling people about Jesus. It is essential that not just our leaders, but that every member recognize how critical it is that we share the good news of Jesus with those around us. We must be a serious and seriously joyful people. We must be hospitable as the family of God. And even if you never teach a class, you need to be able to tell someone what you believe about Jesus. You need to be able to tell your family members, your neighbors, your friends. So even if you never teach in an authoritative way in the church, grow in the knowledge of the word so that you can tell someone else what you believe. Now these are high qualifications and maybe you feel guilty because you haven't measured up in some area. And that's why I began this message with a gospel of grace. So if you felt guilty because of something I've said today, here's what I want you to do. In a minute, I'm going to close us in prayer. And I want you to confess your sin before the Lord and trust in his mercy. Christian confession is not something that makes you feel like a terrible failure. Christian confession is acknowledging your failure and receiving the grace of God and receiving his forgiveness and knowing the depth of his love for you. So friends, in just a moment, I'm going to give you space to confess your sins before the Lord and then trust in his mercy and his grace. I've mentioned last week that I would like us to prayerfully start writing down names of men who might serve our church as elders. Now, there's a ton of things that I don't know about the future. This is not in any way saying we're definitely doing this. All this is doing is we're starting to look for for men who might lead us as a church. And so as you do this, I would ask that you would pray through these qualifications and use the list that God gave us to help us identify the leaders that he wants us to have. So here's what might, might emphasis on might. Here's what might happen in a few months. Perhaps the church will have nominated some different men to serve in this capacity. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I hope I'm never nominated. And then you find out that you are. So what do you do if you know that you don't meet the qualifications in this list, but someone in the church has put your name forward and you're nominated to serve? You can politely decline. I do believe that being faithful to this list is essential for the blessing of our church. And so if you know that you're not qualified to serve because of something that's here, you don't need to explain why. You can just say, you know what? I don't believe that God would be honored and and I think it would be best for the church if instead I followed the lead of others and served as a church member. Most people serve as church members. This is not something that everyone is called to. So if you are not qualified, you may have to say, you know what, I'm I'm honored and flattered, but I, I cannot serve. What do you do if you're currently serving in leadership, but you realize you're you're not qualified? Well, you may need to step down. And unfortunately, sometimes God has to call the church to remove someone who is unfit as an elder. But as we look through these qualifications, here's what I want us to remember and to hope in. The fact that God is the one who has called us together. God is the one who equips and gives good gifts. 
And we can trust that the God who began a good work in our lives and in our church will see it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So as we look for the next generation of leadership within our church, and as we consider a change that would be large, I would ask that you would not only pray, but pray with a kind of joyful hope that God himself will bless our church as we seek to serve him and honor his word. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you and praise you for your good word. Lord, you you don't magnify power and strength, but instead you magnify humility and love. You call us to be gentle, humble servants who are hospitable. And Father, as you've called us, I know you will equip us. I thank you and praise you for the people of the past who have served, that you have saved and blessed. And God, I just ask that you would do it in our lives and in our church. Strengthen us by your grace. And in Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.